Welcome back, everyone, to Love's Labour's Watch. I'm Helena. And I'm Francesca. Sorry, I just had a sip of tea. <laughs> <laughs> kind of ruined that, but never mind. Hello. Hello. <laughs> but yes, welcome. For those of you new here, we are two 20-somethings who chat about thought-provoking, usually female-focused pop culture. We've had some incredible guests on the show in the past, including director Lenny Abrahamson, who did last year's massive TV hit Normal People, authors such as Britt Bennett, Nisha Dolan, Curtis Sittenfeld and Beth O'Leary to name just a few. Last year we released bi-weekly episodes more or less. The plan this year is to release monthly episodes. Uh, we might have a, a few extra here and there if we've got some exciting content we want to get out to you ASAP. But yeah, monthly episodes is the plan. Oh yeah, welcome. This is Love's Labour's Watch. So, for our first episode of 2021, we have a super exciting guest. We connected with Kylie Reid, author of the sensational novel Such a Fun Age. The book, which was Kylie's debut, came out on the eve of 2020 and was one of the biggest books of last year. It was a word of mouth success, passed around from friend to friend and discussed fervently on social media. It also received widespread critical acclaim. It was long listed for the Booker Prize. And it's huge. It's everywhere. Like I keep seeing it uh, for books to read in 2021 as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the novel came out in hardback in the UK last year, but it is now released in paperback. I read Such a Fun Age last year, absolutely loved it. I spoke about it a little bit on the podcast at the time. So I was so thrilled that we got to chat to Kylie and that you and I could continue our discussion about the book today. After we've chatted with Kylie, we'll be talking about some of the other things we've enjoyed recently in the world of pop culture. And here's a hint. Yes, we are once again diving in deep into the Vanessa Hudgens Netflix cinematic universe in all its glory. Um, we're going to get to that, so stay tuned for that. But uh, until then, thanks for listening. And we'll get on with our discussion with Kylie. of the day I'm actually currently in my bed because my flat is so cold so I'm in my bed too so we're all good <laughs> yeah yeah thanks for having me such a fun age you know it was long listed for the Booker Prize it's been a bestseller both in the UK and over in North America for anybody who has yet to read it could you kind of give a brief synopsis um spoiler free of the novel yes. itself Yes, I have my elevator pitch down. <laughs> so Such a Fun Age starts on a Saturday night in September and we meet Amira Tucker. She is a 25-year-old African-American uh, recent graduate from Temple University. She is a bit lost in terms of what she wants her life to look like and, you know, balance in, in her very, you know, natural anti-careerism. She doesn't want to just jump into any job. She doesn't really know what she likes, but she is a very good babysitter. And so one night she's out with her girlfriends, they're having fun, and she gets a call from Alex Chamberlain, who is the mother she babysits for. Alex says, hey, we've had a family emergency. Can you please take our child to the grocery store? I'll pay you double, please. Amira's super broke. So she's like, yes, I'm coming right now. She takes Briar, young three-year-old child, to the grocery store. They're having fun, they're dancing until a customer and a security guard, upon seeing a young black woman with a white child, accuse her of kidnapping the child. So from there, I don't want to give any spoilers, there's a lot of plot in this book, uh, but I would say from there it works as a comedy of 
good intentions and it's about family. It's about ownership and it's about sometimes doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Yeah. And the title, such a fun age, it seems to have several meanings. Um, you know, it's the year that the novel is set is 2015. So it could refer to that. It could also refer to Amira's age. She's 25. We wondered, how did you settle upon this title? And did you always have it in the mind from the beginning? Uh, sure. So yeah, so the title, like you said, I think you said it better than I could, uh, accomplishes a few things referring to Amira's age. She feels like she should be having more fun than she is. She's also coming to the end of her health insurance and feels like she doesn't know how that's going to, to make that work. Um, it's also referring to the age at the time, which, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, especially, you know, an election year, like to say, like to kind of romanticize that like, oh, this current, oh, you know, presidency has been especially bad when, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement was being known in, you know, the Obama second term. And so I think it's important to highlight like that was when a lot of police brutality was happening as well. Um, but also it's, it's a phrase that immediately puts you in a toddler space. I was a nanny for a long time and it was something that you say at the playground and you're talking to like another nanny or a parent, you say, oh, how old are they? Oh, 16 months, yeah, that's such a fun age. It's just like this thing between strangers. And I liked that it was something that strangers say in order to be congenial towards each other, um, but it's very trite as well. So all of those things I really, I really liked what it was accomplishing. And I, I didn't work with the title, I have, my notes app and my phone is very active. And so I had a page that was like every, you know, possible title I thought of, I would just write it in there. And that was definitely one of them. And then at the end, it just, just really stood out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting kind of way to think about it. You know, it has those multi layers of meaning. I um, mean, I think another big way that kind of meaning is, is translated is through the book is by your choice to tell it in the, the third person, right? So we get this insight both into Amira and her boss Alex's kind of point of view. And I think with Alex, what's really interesting is because we really become privy to the uncomfortable things Alex kind of knows about herself, but she doesn't mm -hmm. want to admit. Right. Um, and did you kind of decide that you were always going to do it that way with that insight for the reader or did you try different things? So as far as third person goes, third person close is just where I as a writer, like I think feel comfortable. I love the storytelling that happens when you're in a third close because the ability to tap into that character's mind, but also show them from the outside is really like just delicious to me as as a reader because you're kind of telling two stories at once um, but i did in the beginning actually do first person uh, like journal entries from both amira and alex that never made it into the work later and i think you know that there's a teacher at iowa that refers to this as like throat clearing you're just kind of like testing the waters with your characters and with your story and so while those pages didn't make it into the novel i feel that you know that was an exercise in getting to know these characters a lot more and after kind of trying to write from them from a first person perspective i felt comfortable enough to do it from third person i just love third person yeah 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 fair enough <laughs> And, and structuring the novel in this way also underlines the theme of appearance versus reality as we get an insight into what Alex thinks Amira thinks about her and then what Amira actually thinks. And this theme is also reflected in the way you use social media in the novel. Um, like Alex uses her Instagram feed to pretend she's still in New York, even though she's moved to Philadelphia. So we wondered, um, what did you want to say about this idea of appearances versus actuality and also the role of social media which is very much mixed up and all yeah that. sure so I felt I mean just 
as a storyteller, it's it's always fun to look at the characters who you're putting in the same room with one another. And so Amira doesn't have social media. She feels like the story of her life is not worth documenting. And Alex kind of works in the opposite way where she feels like it doesn't really matter what story you're living. It all matters how you tell the story and how you document it. And so I liked the way that both of them were approaching social media and storytelling and, and how they, they met each other at a really interesting place in terms of age and and career. Um, I think social media is really, I feel like we're still learning so much about it. So we're kind of seeing how it, how it operates. I, I have a very strong feeling that like all of the children who have been documented since they were like one day old will like be in documentaries on Netflix, like talking about like what that feels like and, you know, themes of consent and, and permission and, and all those things. I feel like we're very much still figuring out what that means. Um, but I feel that in terms of the first chapter and the events of the story, you know, in many ways, police brutality and domestic workers not getting, you know, health benefits and everything that they deserve is a very old story. But the way that we approach it is different now because we might see it on our Twitter feed, we might see it on the news, and we also see this like fourth wall character in a cell phone that you think is telling the truth, but it all depends on on what you're bringing to that view as well. And so I think that the way that people are engaging with racism via cell phone is very, very new. Um, and the stories that, that is told through a cell phone is different than it happens in real life often. And so I was really interested in exploring what this recording does to Amira, how Alex tells her own story, how Alex tries to create a story between her and her babysitter that's like, we're friends, this is fine. <laughs> um, I think people tell stories in a number of ways and, and social media is kind of an obvious way of, of how people choose to do it. Yeah, and I think that tacks really well into kind of our next question, which was kind of about that, you know, liberal white person trying to create this like perhaps false closeness to somebody they want to sort of bring into their world so they feel better about themselves. So yeah, throughout the novel, you know, there are liberal white people, Alex being a good example, of, who get wrapped up in the pursuit of sort of being woke and being seen as an ally to these people that actually being them really you know Alex thinks the best way to kind of atone or say sorry to Amira for what she went through in the grocery store with her child mm -hmm. is to befriend her offer her wine become her you know confidant and meanwhile Amira is saying to herself that all she's really pursuing is a uh, the security of a full-time job that right. Alex can offer but does not so what did you kind of want to say here using Alex particularly about why kind of liberal guilt and the role that has mm. You know, for me as a storyteller, it's it's less about what I the message that I want to portray and more about the story that I want to tell. I feel I, I love anything. I love reading anything that's really awkward and cringy and like almost makes you like need to like put the book away a little bit. And I think that liberal guilt is really cringy mm -hmm. <laughs> and just like the attempts of you know the elite to superficially level the playing field are really rich on the page and, and just worth exploring, I think. Um, and so, yeah, the, the anxiety that the elite often feel about the fact that the only way that their life is possible is that they have to exploit the work of women of color. I think mm. that that's a very familiar thing to a lot of people. Um, and I was interested in it from a class perspective and also just how language uh, goes into that conversation as well you know conversations of like you know uh, oh wait remind me you went to this school right and like they've never had these conversations before uh i like to call those like the trappings of friendship like making it seem like you guys are closer than you are 
in order to establish more of a rapport. I think the, the, the very familiar notion of people trying to befriend the people that serve them comes from people feeling like, well, if I'm kind to them, then it will be like, I deserve their help. And, you know, one plus one doesn't equal two there, but I think it's a very common thing that happens with the elite. Yeah. And these themes that you're speaking about and the themes that are central to such a fun age of this sort of intersection of race, class, privilege and feminism as well have only seemed more pertinent this year as the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement have led to an attempt at a reckoning of the inequality ingrained in our society. We wondered what it's been like for you to release this novel at this particular time in history. Uh, you know, I feel that I, I had two very distinct experiences because in the States, my novel came out on December 31st. And then I was on tour. I think we did like 19 cities in January and I came to the UK in February and I got to connect with readers. And it was very much about the story of the novel, which was really exciting. And it was also just really touching to connect with readers who were very much into the same things that I was into. And then after really horrific police brutality events, I think that for a lot of black authors, the, the narrative of my art changed. And unfortunately, in some cases, it was used as I, oh, hey, like I'm a white person and I'm doing the work by reading this book, you know, and, and I wish that that novels could make someone, you know, redistribute power or, or do the work in that area. But I think it's really important that I don't romanticize my my role as a writer, because on one end, of course, this book is about race in, in many parts, but in other moments, it's really funny and really soapy. And that's not really, you know, anyone doing the work by enjoying a book and, and putting money in my hands. I don't really see that as as any kind of redistribution of power. And so it's been interesting to see this this panic of of many readers saying, "What do I do? How do I participate? I'm going to now buy a bunch of black art." And what happens then is like, listen, it's great to buy black art. There's a lot of really great black art, but unfortunately, it makes black artists uh, pedagogical tools. And that's not really what a lot of artists set out to do. I, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm a teacher, but when I'm telling a story, that's, I'm just a storyteller in that role. And so on one level, it, it, it's a little bit heartbreaking because I feel that a lot of black art authors are tasked with also educating people and people pick up their books saying, okay, this is going to say something new about race when that's not every author's job. On the other end, I feel that it's not my job as an artist to judge what brings people to art. And so it's a bit of a conflicting feeling, if that makes sense. I think definitely you're right. Since um, since what's happened this year, the rise of sort of the anti-racism movement has really been taking off. And I think books have actually had a central role to play in that they're easy to suggest, right? Read this anti-white supremacy book, read this book and you'll be educated. But there is a, there is a difference between reading and taking action. I want to see, want to ask kind of what your commentary would be on kind of anti-racist reading, you know, and what in your books, your books place in that kind of more specifically, like how do you feel about being kind of part of that anti-racist movement? Well, for me as a writer, the, something that really 
drives a lot of my fiction writing is nonfiction writing mm -hmm. uh, with, with such a fun age. I was in graduate school and I had the opportunity to dive into class dynamics and that anxiety of the liberal elite and the language that they use. And I, I sought out the experts who have actually studied these topics. And I tried to put that into my fiction as best I could. And so I think the jury for me is still out on, on fiction books being, you know, anti-racist reading. Um, yeah. I think it might be, um, I, I don't think it behooves all black authors to say that all black books are anti-racist. I think it's labeling them with that educate me about racism thing. When, when some black authors are like, I want to write about a family. I want to write about, you know, another planet. I want to write about a camp or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so I'm not really sure, you know, this is my first book. I'm still coming off of it. I'm not really sure where, where I, where my brain goes when I, when I consider that, um, yeah, I'm not really sure. I, when it comes, to, all I can do is approach it from me as a storyteller. And whenever I want to learn about race and history, I go to historians and sociologists and ecologists who have studied this for a really long time. Yeah, I think that kind of concept of an anti-racist reading list is one that's been discussed a lot this year. And there just are complications inherent in that, really. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, if I'm really honest about it, it's, it's a bit of a neoliberal individualistic notion that you can become anti-racist as an individual by reading a book. Um, I wish that were true. I think books are very powerful and I've, there are many books that I've learned from, but the, the idea that you could become anti-racist from reading, you know, a book list, I, I just don't know if that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we also wanted to ask you about the idea of social media influencers, which I guess kind of segues from that question in that it was a lot of influencers who were showcasing anti-racist reading lists. You can kind of imagine Alex doing that in the book. Um, and she is very, as you were saying earlier, obsessed with her own image. And she's also used to never paying for anything like that's kind of the premise of her brand that she writes these letters and she gets freebies in as a result. So we wondered, you know, you talked earlier about social media and how that kind of played into your story writing, but we wondered about the idea of the influencer in particular, and if there was any particular inspirations for Alex's character or anything that you kind of observed in the modern world that you just wanted to bring in through mm. that. It's so interesting because something that happened with Alex in describing her career and, and what she does, I actually never used the word influencer. Um, and then people see this image and they say, Ooh, I know that person, like this is recognizable to me, which I completely understand. Um, that being said, I think that, you know, Alex is, is a lot more, uh, savvy that, well, probably cause she's my character. So that's why I like her, but like, I think she's a lot more savvy than, than people give her credit for. And that there are a lot of people who don't identify as an influencer, but that is what they're doing on on Instagram every day, they're selling their image and they're creating a story that their life is one way um, that they want everyone to believe. Um, I think social media is fascinating. And I mean, I think we've all gone down some rabbit holes of looking at people <laughs> we don't know and the language that they use and the bio that they have, whether it says, you know, boy, mom, mama, like loves plants, like whatever. It's just so interesting to me that we just like label ourselves uh, for everybody else. Um, so I think that I'm interested in storytelling. And so social media is, is that now from how you spent your day to what you're posting to your children's life. Um, so I was very, very interested in that for Alex. I'm also inspired by, by anything um, from music to like a spin class to a book I read. Yeah, anything is, is fair game. 
that's what really helps kind of create that very realistic, relatable kind of person that Alex is so much so that you, you could label her uh, an influencer, but then we're digging, you know, you say, oh yeah, we're digging you deeper into her. She's more than that and also not that. And I think mm -hmm. Imira from, from, I think both of us was a really interesting character because she's quite hard to hold on to. And I think that Alex and Kelly both find this, you know, her boyfriend and her, her boss. Right. Um, you know, she, she often is kind of the last to voice her true feelings. Actually, for example, you know, we see that when she really doesn't want to talk about what happens in the grocery store kind of with anybody, actually. Um, and then Alex and Kelly, among others, constantly try to sort of get the reactions from her they expect or want. And she kind of refuses to really be projected onto either by them or really by us. You know, she doesn't mm. really give the information that you sometimes want from her. And did you consciously want to create this kind of character from her, particularly because she's a member of like a marginalized community who people sometimes often try and use for their own ends? Or was that um, something that you just kind of felt a mirror always was, I suppose? Some characters just really present themselves to you really clearly and are almost like easy to write. I'm putting quotes around it because it wasn't <laughs> easy, but yeah. Amira was someone that just really presented herself to me. And um, she is someone that because of the way that she's grown up, because of who she is inherently, she just needs to take a minute to figure out what she thinks and then communicate it. And when she needs to communicate it, she's a really great communicator, but she's not someone who will tell you in the moment. And I have to say, Amira and I are very, very different people, but I, I share some of that. You know, if I hear something or something makes me uncomfortable, I don't necessarily attack it in the moment. I'm more of a like two days later, like, hey, can we talk about what you said? Like, <laughs> figure out like what that moment was. And I think that that's very human. Um, I think what happens a lot of the time is in being so online and racism being documented online, what happens is the videos that become very viral tell a very simple story and it's extreme violence and tragedy or particularly with a lot of black women it's a very cartoonly racist white woman like saying the n-word or being terrible and then it's a black woman who has had enough and she's ready to be like no absolutely not not today let me tell you what's going to happen instead I wish I was in that place every day, but I'm not. Some days I am and some days I'm not. And I think that without realizing it, people are expecting Black women to perform in that way whenever they're forced with racism. And that's just not, you know, it's not what humans are like every single day. And so I really wanted to honor Amira as a really great babysitter. She loves Briar. She treats her like an adult. Um, she is kind of bad with money. And when she gets like a big raise, she's like, fuck it, I'm going to buy a leather jacket. Like we've all been there. It's fine. Um, I wanted to give her, you know, freedom to just be who she was. And sometimes she's ready to tell someone what she feels. And sometimes she needs a moment. And I think we can all relate to that. We also wanted to ask you a bit about the novel's ending as it's been out in the world for a little while and we'll preface this with a spoiler alert for any listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book yet. Um, if that is you and you're listening to this, I recommend skipping forward a few minutes. Um, but it's, it's definitely a satisfying ending oh, for Amira. Um, but it's, it's not a fairy tale ending. You know, um, she's got a less toxic job. She's got a more steady job. Um, but the novel also ends with her observation that she never really knew exactly what to take from her time with the Chamberlains. And she kind of reflects on Briar as well, who she was obviously so fond of and isn't kind of can't really be sure exactly what kind of adult she'll become. Um, 
so we wondered like how you approached that ending like and I guess also a bit about your writing process like had you kind of plotted out exactly what was going to happen and you've got these key set pieces as well like the Thanksgiving dinner when everything explodes and um yeah we wondered if that was sort of there from the beginning that eventual finality um I definitely plot things out when I'm going and the ending was was there in a fuzzy way but I definitely glean more from my characters as I write them. And so I think what you said is right um, in that Amira does find more stability, but I wanted to honor the fact that stability for her is, I mean, Amira will never make as much money as Alex. She'll never have the same kind of healthcare if we still have the presidency we do now. You know, she'll never live in the same house or she'll never be able to afford the the childcare that she is so good at giving. And so I wanted to really honor the path for many young black women of not making um, half as much as, as many of their of their counterparts in certain situations. Uh, so that was important to me. But the way that I go about that, I'll have to tell you, I think I wrote the ending in three different ways. I think there were three different um, examples. And by that point, I had an agent. And so it was going back and forth with her. It's, it's a really hard thing to stick the landing of giving your character wins in some ways, but also honoring how things are for Black women in a reality, but also just closing things up without closing anything too neat. I don't like any bows that are like too neat. It always drives me nuts. I like a little bit of ambiguity, um, but it was just a really big pull and push of, of figuring out how to how to end it with Amira. Um, I wanted to end it with a lot of gray matter, kind of like the rest of the book. I, you know, from the beginning, Listen, I love rom-coms like a lot, but I didn't want this to be a story of like, will she end up with the guy? I never wanted that. I wanted this to be more of, will she end up with this little child? Like, will they have a relationship? So she has this moment at the end where she sees Briar and it kind of it kind of messes with her because she had this relationship with this really sweet little girl that she will never get back. And while she'll be fine, I don't think that that loss will leave her. I think that it's a, a really kind of interesting way to subvert like what the expectations might be and that the true kind of like the true relationship of this novel that is important is the, the Briar Mirror relationship absolutely and um, thinking I guess of um, how those expectations might be sort of like portrayed or in another way um, we know that the novel itself is being kind of adapted for yes. um, yeah adapted for uh, a film and um, we it's being directed by uh, Lena Waithe who is behind Queen and Slim and Master of None absolutely fantastic shows and film um, so yeah, how is that going? Is there any kind of movement there? Is there anything you know they're doing that you can kind of share? Yes, so well, okay, so I'm executive producing, which is really lovely. I oh. didn't want to, I totally respect when authors are like, take it, have fun, but I really wanted to, to come along for the journey and kind of op option myself with it. And so uh, the teams are really wonderful. It feels like a good workshop where everyone cares about the craft a lot. And so I'm executive producing, but I'm more working as a thought partner. And I think that film is a completely different language and beast. So I really wanted to leave the writing up to the experts. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad about that because I think they have amazing ideas that I, that I wouldn't have had, but I'm definitely there to keep the spirit of the novel alive and also just to learn. And so, so far so good. Um, but of course with the pandemic shutdown, things are, a little bit up in the air as far as when we can get going. So hopefully 2021 will bring about some, some good changes. Yeah, awesome.
That's exciting. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the book is so cinematic in, in so many ways. And even, you know, the, the ending you were just speaking about of, um, you know, when she sees Briar, Amira sees Briar in a crowd, I just visualise that so much. And it does have that bittersweet um, end that perhaps a, a sad love story might. It's a little bit sad there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm so, like, it, well, none of it seems real right now. Like, I'll believe it's real when it's actually on TV. But when I fantasize about the moments I'm excited about, it's things like that, like the casting of Briar and what little girl is going to, like, you know, make everyone's hearts kind of cry a little bit. So, yeah, I'm very excited to see how it goes. And I think for a lot of people, I mean, you mentioned the book came out at the beginning of this year. And so many people have, like, really sunk into it during the lockdown and the quarantines. And it's been, uh, you know, uh, a welcome escape in some ways. Um and so we wondered, like, is there any books or movies or TV shows or podcasts or anything else that you've been finding refuge in this year and that you'd like to recommend to us and also to our listeners? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Like too many. I should have sat by my bookshelf so I could do a little show and tell. But yes, <laughs> I just finished Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. I think I'm late. That book is so good. <laughs> it was amazing. I felt like I wanted to cry and I love it when authors can take a really momentous event, something like Hurricane Katrina, but make it extremely personal. Um, it was an incredible book and I, and I loved it. Um, what else am I reading right now? I'm gonna peek what's over by the side of my bed. Hey, God. Um, nothing too good over there. Reading some bad books as well. Um, I'm also very, very into uh, this podcast called Lit Society. Um, they're lovely. It's two women, Alexis and Kari living in Chicago and they do book reviews and they just make me laugh and I feel really creepy because I feel like they're my friend and like, I don't know them. <laughs> they're just really great. And so Lit Society is one. Uh, there's a podcast called Seeking Derangements, which I think is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Um, I watch The Bachelorette, which is trash, <laughs> but it keeps me entertained. Yeah, it's isn't it? <laughs> Yes, yes, for sure. Um, and then I'm reading this book called Knocking the Hustle by Lester K. I think Shrut is his last name. Um, and it's about neoliberal politics in Black communities, which is really interesting. Um, is that it? Yeah. Yeah, those are about it. Oh, that's great. Lots of, yeah, lots of recommendations there. And I feel like you need like something like The Bachelorette to just kind of switch on at the end of the day. And yeah, yes, exactly. I feel the same. Do you guys have The Bachelorette yeah. as well? No, well, I mean, you can watch it here, but we don't have our own version. But we have, you know, like Love Island. Oh, okay. Um, and, yeah. yeah. Do you, yeah, do you watch that? that. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big selling Sunset fan. Like, that's the one that I kind of really enjoyed this, this summer. Yes, I remember turning that one on. This is like the, like, $15 million house show. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Solid. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak to us. We love the book and we're so excited to potentially see the movie adaptation. Thank you soon. very, very much. I so, so appreciate it. Have a good day. Bye, ladies. Thank you so much to Kylie Reid for taking the time to speak with us. We were just so excited to speak to her about such a fun age and it was great to get lots of good recommendations as well I'm definitely going to check out the Lit Society podcast that sounds like a great listen. One of the things she said near the start um, she described the book as a comedy of good intentions which I really liked. I do think in style this book is something of a spiritual successor to 
like the Regency and Victorian comedies of manners, you know, Jane Austen styles, taking that inquisitive eye to the way people behave, to our present society. It was also really thought-provoking to hear Kylie comment on what she called the two distinct experiences of publishing and promoting the novel and how there was that shift halfway through last year. As she said in the interview, in the wake of the increased discussions about racism in the US and also in the UK and across the world, the narrative of her art changed, that's how she put it. And in the interview, Kylie spoke about what she saw as some of the limitations of the anti-racist reading list as a concept. Reading diversely is great. Reading novels written by authors based across the world from different backgrounds, that can also be a very eye-opening experience. And there are also some great non-fiction books that unpack issues in greater depth. But as Kylie put it, reading a novel doesn't just make you anti-racist. Um, and so I guess recognising some of the conflicts with that as a concept particularly when it's applied to novels like Such a Fun Age that didn't set out to be educational but rather observational is important to do really. It's not like this anti-racist polemic and obviously Kylie in no way you know wrote it to be like that you know it's an investigation of character and people she's interested in. Yeah and she has such a grasp on her characters and it was so fascinating to hear her talk about them in the interview. Um, I loved that she'd written the journal entries for both Alex and Amira and that helps her kind of get into their heads and their respective points of view. But also all the supporting characters in the book are just as rich and feel just as real, don't they? Especially like, you know, the boyfriend, Kelly, who um, uh, who Amira and Alex both kind of engage with romantically over the years. I think, um, you know, his personality and who he is and the kind of role he plays it's really interesting um and I think in the novel I, I quite enjoyed also how nobody is like the bad guy in the scenario like Kylie does a really really good job of of showing all perspectives and showing that like nothing is as simple as it seems uh, Alex kind of suspects that he surrounds himself with black people as a kind of image thing. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and it's kind of a, it feels like tokenism. And also this fetishization, that's quite a hard word to say, isn't it? Fetishization of, um, of black people, you know, and I think that actually really does speak to the fact that like a lot of black culture has been itself appropriated by other cultures. You know, black culture is at the base of quite a lot of what is popular music nowadays. And there are certain celebrities and people like that who take advantage of it. And I think um, Kelly, you know, Kelly shows sometimes how easy it is to brush off the fetishization of another culture by saying, oh, I'm just appreciating it. You know what I mean? Oh, I just think it's cool. I think it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a really interesting question. And especially when it's kind of that, that, that criticism is leveled at Kelly, how hard it is to actually not make it stick as such, but it's quite difficult to have a, a proper conversation about it. Yeah, it, there really is so much to unpack in this book. And I think we'll just have to finish this section off by just reiterating again how much we loved the novel and how much we loved speaking to Kylie all about it. As I think I definitely said on the podcast before, I always enjoy novels where you get to really dig into the messiness, confusion and subtleties of people and their interactions with one another and Such a Fun Age just does that so well. So I highly recommend if you haven't read the book yet to seek it out and if you're in the UK you can now seek out this lovely paperback edition.
It's available from all good bookstores uh, in the UK. Um, it's been out since late December. So um, definitely go and we really recommend to get that. There's also obviously hardback and audiobook versions for you to enjoy, whatever takes your fancy. Yes, I actually also listened to the audiobook version as well as reading the physical copy of the book and the audiobook is brilliant. So yeah, just a final big thank you to Kylie Reid and we hope you enjoyed this interview. Let's, uh, let's move on. And so speaking of things we've been enjoying ah. over the past festive period, yes. um, obviously we are aware that Christmas is over. However, <laughs> we, we do know this. We thought it would be fun to reflect on some of our festive film choices. And particularly because Helena and I watched a couple of films over Netflix party around the Christmas period. Um, so we thought it would be kind of fun to revisit some of those with you all today. First up is the iconic sequel to the iconic <laughs> Princess Switch, which we yeah. definitely talked about when it came out in 2018, Yeah, uh, where Vanessa Hudgens plays two people. One of them is a princess and one of them is an American baker. Yeah. And they switch lives for hijinks and fun and romantic reasons. Um, yeah. The sequel came out this year, but kind of confusingly, Vanessa Hudgens was also in a Christmas film last year, which we talked about. Yep. What was it called? And the, the night before, the night before Christmas. Christmas, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is totally separate, but also part of the Vanessa Hudgens cinematic <laughs> Marvel, not Marvel. Cinematic, <laughs> cinematic universe. Cinematic universe of Christmas Netflix films. Mm. Um, but the Princess Switch 2 switched again. I mean, okay, so Helen, <laughs> what were you expecting from this film? Knowing what you know about Vanessa, Netflix, Christmas, yeah. uh, this kind of thing. You know, I was expecting hijinks. Uh, I was expecting miscommunications of a Shakespearean Twelfth Night level where yes. things happen because people just get their wires crossed. And also we were given, um, you know, obviously I expected them to switch again, which mm -hmm. which they did, which was fair enough. Um, and I, <laughs> we also knew in advance that Vanessa would be playing a third character. Yes. Uh, <laughs> another member of the British aristocracy. Um, wait, wait, no, she wasn't British. She was from, what's it called? Like, it's not Genovia, but it's very similar. Oh. The place that they are in. Oh, of course. Right. They're not even from Britain. Sorry. Another member of uh, of a nameless European aristocracy. Um, it's very funny, isn't it? I think all of these films, I mean, The Princess Diaries did it, you know. Belgravia. That is the name oh, of the place, Belgravia. Which literally makes no sense at all. That's for anyone who knows an area of London. But in yeah, this case, yeah. it's a sort of european state somewhere yeah um, yeah but they yeah. also mention all the time montanero okay just to clarify i was completely confused throughout this film <laughs> we will come to that we will come to that so yeah you were expecting more switching more hijinks and yeah, yeah do you feel like that was um anticipation was correct yeah you know what i actually think the princess switch 2 was better than the princess switch 1 because the princess switch 1 it was kind of tame right like the the, the budget wasn't as big there was this whole baking competition thing which is a bit weird and i didn't really think that was that interesting um and i really enjoyed vanessa switching and then showing off her acting prowess and again uh, vanessa no hey literally you're amazing we love you um 
But I think the Princess Switch 2 actually brought in like political, you know, you know how in um, A Prince for Christmas, A Christmas Prince, sorry, there was like a political element where like, someone was trying to steal the crown yes. and there was like some like, mild peril. I think that like I saw more of that in the princess switch too where it was like because it was about how um princess uh what's her face stacy no her name's not stacy margaret margaret of uh, margaret of belgravia like her, her her trying to get the crown and then her being like betrayed by some people who were close to her and then stacy at one point being into mild peril i don't know and it was less about the switching and the establishment of who the characters were and it's more about like they've known each other for a while they're friends there are husbands and boyfriends involved i know i I thought it was like a bit more together and a bit more like uh plot driven than the first one which was more like Vanessa is two people driven you know what I mean I guess it moved like the first one is very much in the vein of all these other films where people realize that they look alike and then switch lives like yeah the parent yeah. trap whereas this film had already established that they'd switched once so they had the ability to switch again I yeah say. yeah but also they could kind of focus on this sort of storyline of yeah somebody's throne being in peril However, I actually found it so confusing. And I think oh, it's really? confusing because, like, th- I don't know, I guess because, like, they switch, they do switch again. Yeah, they but do. But also figuring out who was who and which of them was, like, royal and which of them wasn't. And the answer is they're kind of both royal now because American Vanessa Hudgens has married the prince, right? Yeah, of yeah, Belgravia. yeah. Yeah. And then the original kind of royal Vanessa Hudgens had been with the baker, the or with Vanessa Hudgens, the baker's friend, but she had now split up with him. And she now seemed to be kind of dating like her butler, kind of, but no. Was well that was that? no, I think he was more like a like a chief advisor kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Like um like uh the guy in um oh the guy in the crown. Yeah, I know he Yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think it's. I don't think the plot makes a lot of sense, but I think that that is the that is deliberate. Um, we had a great time watching it on Netflix party with our friend Catherine, yep. who uh, pointed out that in every scene there were at least like three Christmas trees. Um, yeah, even in, in their the bedroom, like even in, in the bedroom. like in in like so. Stacy, yeah, now is living in Montanaro with uh, Prince Edward, uh, and like their bedroom had three Christmas trees in it. And also, can we just have some justice for Edward right now? All he wants to do was, like, have a snuggly time with Stacey. And Stacey was just running around trying to fix people's lives and getting herself in trouble. So, like, poor Edward, just saying. He has a very minor role in this film. Also, he's tricked by a child, but that doesn't, that doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and a bit like in The Night Before Christmas, there were a lot of great festive jumpers and festive oh, yeah. ensembles. Yeah. And also, we had a particular enjoyment of this film because it was filmed in Edinburgh, where we used to live. Um, and you could like spot like locations like the Dome, which is this like beautiful restaurant that used to be an old bank on George Street in Edinburgh. Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And it plays one of the palaces, I think, in the film. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, and there was another um, one of these sort of old country houses on the outskirts of Edinburgh played uh, the palace. Uh, so that was quite fun, like spotting. Yeah, it was Scottish fun, wasn't it? Moments. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just. I mean, I think we cannot speak about this film without discussing Vanessa's appearance as the third Vanessa. The third Vanessa. Yeah, is I love this, it. Um, devious scheming member of the aristocracy, as you of said, of Belgravia, yeah, who wants the throne and will go to all efforts to get it. Uh, and she's kind of flanked by these two other people who sort of do her bidding um, and help her with her 
evil plan and she pretends to be who does she does she pretend to be Stacy she pretends to be Margaret and then yeah she pretends to be Margaret but then she actually kidnaps Stacy who's trained to be Margaret so So yeah you can see why I was confused (laughs) just something another great piece of of Vanessa's repertoire I really can't wait until um the next film she does the princess switch three and I also can't wait for like all of Marvel's Christmas films to come together and become one big universe I just you also just called them Marvel again (laughs) oh no I feel like Marvel are gonna sue us you know yeah I know I know but yeah uh, Lady Fiona that was the name of the third Vanessa oh Lady Um, Fiona right and you could tell that Vanessa was having a blast playing her like that you know that was quite a fun role but at the end and this is I'm not gonna say spoiler alert because guys come on it's a pretty switch switch again why have you not watched it already (laughs) um but at the end everyone's kind of forgiven everything's kind of fine yeah Vanessa well Lady Fiona's two people who work for her end up like in jail in the palace whereas Lady Fiona is just allowed to kind of roam free and do community it's just community yeah she just just does community service and you're like oh my gosh yeah, she was she was forgiven, but I suppose that means she can be in the future film when they introduce a fourth Vanessa lookalike. Oh God! Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was great fun, albeit very silly. Alongside Ugh. the princess switch switched again, we also watched and were perhaps even more baffled by the uh, Christmas on the Square. Christmas on the Square, <laughs> uh, the Dolly Parton starring christmas film yeah um which we watched mostly because christine baranski of mamma mia fame was playing a kind of grinch like woman who yeah. owned a town yeah and that was yeah. kind of appealing to us yeah um, and there was singing as well there was singing i'm not sure any of the songs were particularly great but like... well this is the issue i mean the film itself does not tell you that's actually <laughs> so i think as far as i can tell this was a, this is a stage show made by dolly parton right which is fine but it's like christian rock which is fine, but we did not know this going in. It's actually like the film itself has like highly Christian themes, yeah. including like one of the heroes is a pastor called Pastor Christian. I mean, the whole thing just writes itself. Um, and there's uh, some very interesting plot twists, some uh, Dolly Parton floating on a cloud as an angel, some like soul singing in a church, um, some very questionable rhymes. I mean, the whole thing was just an absolute experience, but like warning, it's a Christian rock film, uh, warning. Well, Dolly Parton plays a sort of angel figure. At first, and there was another angel in the film too. At first I thought she was like a ghost because I thought oh, she yeah. was more like Christmas Carol-esque. Yeah, yeah. But no, she is an angel. Um, I mean, obviously Christine Baranski is known for kind of leaning into like these sort of campy roles when she yeah. plays them. Yeah. And that does happen in this film. So she wants to sell the town because she has bad memories there and you learn what the bad memories are and you're a bit like, actually, it's pretty dark what happened to her in this town, but whatever. Well, keep it light. Um, and then all, all the the local people are like trying to fight her, but obviously she's more powerful than them. And then they go to church and they sing these songs together to make themselves feel better. And one of them is like a We Hate Christine Bariansky song, The Wicked Witch of the Middle. And you're like, okay. Turns out yeah. all right, oh and then and then it's like the line is what she steals our she stumps she's something something she steals something something and our fiddles and you're like okay 
Right. So uh, the Wicked Witch of the Middle, which doesn't really make any sense. It's... I mean, don't explain why she's the Wicked Witch of the Middle. Like, we were literally messaging being like, I don't get it. Like, with the middle of what? It's like yeah. they mean the middle of America. But, yeah. Like, that's not clear because at the beginning, like, why would you know that that's where they were? And, and they're kind of making comparisons to the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wicked Witch of the East in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Uh, and so she's the Wicked Witch of the Middle. But yeah, it was quite baffling. I, I didn't understand. And I don't think any of us really understood. Look, again, it's... <laughs> I think, it, if nothing else, it was a very, very, very entertaining film. Um, particularly when Christine Baryansky was being visited by an angel and then she was, like, saying sassy things back to the angel. And then at one point she got, like, drunk and then hung over. And then there was this... And there was, like, a Mary Poppins-style lantern dance. Yeah, love it. That was, uh, I guess, our Christmas TV or Christmas movie highlights, uh, which <laughs> is kind of funny when you think about it, because I wouldn't have said either of them were like award-winning films. No. There were other films I watched through the festive period, which I would recommend more for their acting prowess and their yeah. stories. I watched Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on mm. Netflix. Oh, cool. Um, really great film with Chadwick Boseman, sadly, in his final role, but an amazing performance by him and also by Viola Davis. Uh, really good film. I also watched Soul, the Pixar film. Have you seen oh, that yet? I'm watching that on Wednesday. Yeah. Oh, really great. Um, and yeah, we should definitely discuss that after you've watched it. Well, that's about all we have time for this week. But thank you so much for listening. As always, we are on social media. And we encourage you highly to get in contact with us. Uh, we are on Twitter at RealLLW and on Instagram at Loves Labours Watch. We also have a Gmail, which is there for anything you want to chat to us. If you want a guest you'd like to propose to us, do let us know. Um, we're on Gmail at Loves Labours Watched at gmail.com. All yeah. in case, no punctuation. Um, again, thank you for listening. Um, we're back next month with some more great content, but until then, thanks again to Kylie for being on the show and we'll see you next time. Bye. See you then. Bye.